turn to Psalm 19 this morning. Yes, I trust that um, you will be blessed, and I count on you, yes, I do, I count on you to participate in this part of worship by listening, placing yourself under God's word. Psalm 19, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above or the firmament proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. For who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my Redeemer and my Rock. In his illustrious career, C.S. Lewis also wrote a book on the Psalms entitled Reflections on the Psalms. It's a small book of about 150 pages. He considered 19 to be, quote, the greatest poem in the Psalter and one of the greatest lyrics in the world of all time. Rating this piece may be quite subjective, and you may or may not follow him on his trail. Fact is that Psalm 19 is one of only three poems of their kind. Psalm 1, 19, and 119 are the so-called Torah Psalms. Psalms that elevate the law of God. But among these three, Psalm 19 is distinctive. 
in relating the instruction of the law to the instruction discernible in creation. As you see, verses 1 through 6 speak of God's revelation in the heavens. And verses 7 through 14 speak of God's revelation in the Torah or in the law of Moses. The two parts have often been judged to have been separate songs in order to be stitched together at a later point. But apart from the unifying vocabulary features that at first sight seem to argue for one unit, there is good reason, theological reason, in fact, to argue that 19 has always been one. The two parts of the psalm resemble the two creation accounts of Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 1, 1 through 2, 3, or may I say generally, and I hope that you will be content, Genesis 1 speaks of God creating the whole cosmos, a sweeping view of all creation and how it was made, whereas chapter 2, verses 4 through 25, or Genesis 2, speaks of the creation of humanity, zeroing in on the human being as the special revelation and creation of God. More so, chapter 1 speaks of God as Elohim, and it uses this name for God exclusively, whereas chapter 2 speaks of God as Yahweh Elohim consistently. But there is also another shift as you move from Genesis 1 to Genesis 2, built into these two creation accounts. The text also moves from God's ordering of all creation to the first giving of special revelation with a real choice to either obey or disobey that is not found in the first part or the first account of creation in Genesis 1. It is, you could say, the giving of a mini-Torah, ordering man's life in God's presence in the garden. Two trees in the Garden Eden represent life and death, the tree of life and the tree of knowing good and evil. They represent obedience and the way of life and disobedience that results in death. Just as Moses spoke of his law, saying to Israel, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have placed before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, for he is your life. And this basic choice of life and death in the law 
anchored in the law, is anticipated in the two trees of life and death. And in the command not to eat from the tree of death, the tree of knowing good and evil that brings death, should you eat of it, but instead to choose life. And by implication, to choose the tree that gives life. Now David was steeped in the world of the Torah, and David knew Genesis 1 and 2 like the back of his hand. And when he composed, he likely thought of the opening chapters of Genesis. You can hear Genesis 1 in his vocabulary as he speaks of the heavens, Hashamayim, and the firmament, translated sky above here in the ESV, Harakia. These are two terms that occur side by side in the first six verses of the Hebrew Bible as every Israelite knew. David also aligns his choice of names for God to echo Genesis and its two creation accounts. In verses 1 through 6, the eulogy of the heavens, he employs El. El is an alternative for Elohim used exclusively in Genesis 1, whereas in 7.14, David speaking of Torah, he uses the name Yahweh, the name introduced in Genesis chapter 2. And just as Genesis 1 and 2 move from creation in general to the creation of man and to special revelation to man, so does Psalm 19. It lets creation speak of God's glory in order to show how the law of God or how Torah speaks to the heart of man. Special revelation. And so, Psalm 19 can be seen as a poetic rendering or an artistic a reflection on Genesis. And it's two parts General revelation and special revelation are likely to have been inspired by the two creation accounts. All right. Right about now, you probably wonder what we are doing here today. James, is that what you think? Yes, indeed. Today, we limit ourselves to the first six verses the theme of part A of Psalm 19 being the eloquence of the skies, or simply the word of the skies. Picture, picture David gazing up to the skies periodically as he writes his poem. You can see him sitting there, either at night or during daytime, doing this thing. He's a man who understands that the primary purpose of the sky is to speak and therefore to make us speak in response, to solicit a response of praise in us. The psalm's premise 
The basic premise of this psalm is what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 18. That God's eternal power and deity are clearly perceived in the things that have been made. Case in point, says David, the heavens. Look, the heavens. And specifically, the sun. The sun. Who together say, the hand that made us is divine. Different ages needed this reminder in different ways. God knows we need it no less. Now the ancients, they worshipped the sun and the moon and the host of heaven. Whereas we reduce it or reduce them to technical explanations. And we are comfortable with them because they smack of some sort of control. David did not know that the earth orbits the sun in a solar year. David did not know that while it orbits the sun, it's also rotating around its own axis each day in a 24-hour period at a hair-raising speed that you can measure at the equator of 460 meters per second or roughly speaking 1,000 miles per hour. David had no clue that day and night, as we experience them as earthlings, are due to the earth's rotation around its own axis. Nor did he know that earth's tilt at an angle of 23.5 degree accounts for the change of seasons as the northern and southern hemispheres either warm up or cool down when in the course of the Earth's orbit around the sun, they're either turned away from or turned to the sun. He did not know any of those things. But David knew something that we have lost in the shuffle. Something that we have long forgotten. As he sat, and many people do not have a ticket, they don't have a ticket to enter, to have this experience, as he sat under God's great theater of the skies at ground level, and he was moved to childlike wonder. Childlike wonder. And what did he know? He knew that nature is incomprehensible apart from its maker. However much scientific evidence or data you amass or possess, you will always have less than what David had without this basic understanding. 
You can be a scientist and know the ins and outs of this creation and of the cosmos as far as we have explored it and have come to understand it. And you still know less than a man like David who would have shaken his head at the things that we hold to be true. And David knew <laughs> in some way nature knows God. Nature knows God. And therefore nature can and it does proclaim God's glory, the sum total of his perfection. And he could hear its voice. Many people are deaf to it. He could hear its voice calling out God's name. He knew that all things are alive to give witness to him. That all creation is alive to the reality that it is creature that comes from and points to the one and only and true God. And David heard the voice in particular as he looked at the skies. He heard their witness, a threefold witness. He heard the witness of the skies as irrepressible, enduring, and comprehensive. And then he beheld the sun and he heard it sing a song of irrepressible and enduring and comprehensive love and joy. And he rejoiced to hear its song. I hope that you will rejoice to hear it today. So let's begin. David says, day to day pours out speech, night to night reveals knowledge. The Germans have a saying for loose cannons. People who speak irrespective of whether it's appropriate or not. They say, if he or she dies, you must kill the mouth and bury it in a separate grave or else it won't stop talking. <laughs> it's not bad, is it? Even in translation, the indomitable urge to speak is here expressed in pour out, pour forth. Imagine an irrepressible bubbling up of a fountain of words. The skies speak and they will not be silenced. Never. For as long as they exist, each 24-hour cycle speaks and reflects God's mind as the heavens mark the fundamental boundary between light and darkness with a great light that rules the day and a lesser light ruling the night with countless stars also. David's comment here of the night revealing knowledge is a perfect compliment because both day and night have something to say to you. The night has its own language. The night speaks its own words. 
As it is only in the darkness of the night skies that you can finally see that we are not existing in an empty universe. But that creation is vast, beyond comprehension. Even without a Hubble telescope, you can guess. It is beyond knowing, and it always will be. Because darkness, and in more than one way, darkness enhances our perception of depth and expansion. And the only appropriate response is, your handiwork, how great you are. Second, the indomitable, irrepressible testimony of the heavens implies, necessarily implies, the enduring nature of their witness. If you can't hold it down, it will continue. Hmm? David says, their voice goes out to the end of the earth. And David speaks of this testimony of the heavens. Everything speaks because it was made to speak. And the skies will speak the words that God gave them to utter until the end. Their witness is constant. It will last for as long as there is time. They will always deliver the message. For this is how God appointed them to be, the heavens. Keepers. Keepers of time. According to Genesis 1, 14 through 16. So stop. Stop here and consider The irrepressible and the enduring testimony of the heavens has something to say to you about the Most High and about Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, whose voice will never be silenced, whose words will continue to speak until the end of the world, calling us, calling you, calling all creatures to see that we do not live by our own ability to earn or to achieve or to possess, but we live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Every good and perfect gift comes from, comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation nor shadow of change. The heavens say, Heaven rules. And this leads straight into the third point. The witness of the skies is comprehensive. It's irrepressible and enduring as to time. And it is comprehensive as to space. Their voice goes out to the end of the world. There's no place on earth. There is no place on earth that isn't governed by day and night and the lights that were made for both. No place. Now, there are earthquakes and there are wildfires 
And there are storms, and there are floods, and there are landslides, and, and, and there are volcanic eruptions, things that disturb the natural order for a time and in places. But you and I, we have yet to see a day where the sun doesn't rise or the sun doesn't set. And we will not see one, not until the end. You won't see a day of light that isn't succeeded by the night and its darkness in predictable fashion. You can set your clock to it. In fact, heaven sets your clock. It determines what time is and how. Because the heavens are the first witness to God in the natural order. They say, heaven rules over day and night to speak of God's complete and sovereign rule over all things. And if there is nothing else that you can take from this, if there is nothing else that you can learn from the heavens, then let it be this. There is stability and steadiness built into them. And this, my friends, this cannot be because God's rule is meant to be to your detriment. This cannot be because God's rule doesn't want your welfare. It wants your welfare. There is life-giving power invested in things, especially the heavens, doing what they are supposed to do. And God's will for you is neither random nor casual, but it is good. God's will for you is good. It is as steadfast as the heavens. In fact, it is even more so as Jesus says, yes, heaven and earth will pass away eventually, but my words shall never pass away. But if you can hear the heavens speak, if you can hear the heavens speak of God, well, then you shouldn't worry, should you? You shouldn't worry. Although we live in a world that is filled with worry, we worry about the past and we worry about the present and God knows we worry about tomorrow. And if for any reason we have nothing to worry about, that worries us. <laughs> and we want people to take us at our words. It is important for us that people judge us to be trustworthy. And this is why we protest innocence. This is why we assert clean motives. And we declare it as often as we think necessary to make people believe us. Now, we can put up smoke screens, but consider how the heavens declare the impeccable glory of God in every place and with never-ceasing speech and clarity. But now, David raises the stakes, and he says, here comes the sun. Here comes the sun. 
For the Son teaches you an irrepressible and an enduring and a comprehensive lesson of love and joy. So the heavens named in verse 1 as the first witness to God are now presented as a shelter or a tent for the sun. In the heavens, God has set a tent for the sun. What an image! A tent, a shelter of cosmic dimensions or proportions. Now, in ancient Near Eastern religions, the sun was an object of worship. People worshipped the sun. It's not a god here. It's the servant of the Lord. It's the servant of the Lord. But what a servant and what a witness. The sun rises at dawn with eagerness. Like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber to meet his bride on their wedding day. See the groom. Picture the groom. Cut him out of this place with a bright and radiant smile and brilliant attire. The kind that you don't wear every day. And he says, today is a great day. Today is a good day. Come with me. It is not by accident that Jesus referred to his ministry in terms of a bridegroom coming to claim his bride. When his contemporaries asked him, now why don't your disciples fast? Why do they not wear long faces? And he answered, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? This is a wedding, folks. And as long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. I am in festive mood, so let them be. Let them be. The sun is a sign of love. Christ's love, touching his bride, Christ's love touching his church, his people, and, and touching all creation with his life-giving energy, causing things to grow and things to thrive, giving life to everything, and nothing is hidden from its heat that gives life. Moreover, the sun does it every day. Every day, with the same eagerness, undiminished, minus nothing. Every day, it does the same thing. Always renewing this testimony of love. You know, Psalm 19, in essence, affirms that love is the basic reality. Love is the basic reality. God is love. Love is the force that drives the cosmos. 
It turns the earth to the sun every day to face it. It makes the earth orbit the sun every year, and it cancels all your sins. Love will also glorify you. This is indeed an extraordinary thought. And just as day after day renew the witness, just as you see the sun rising each day, so God's love is yours as often as you come to him and turn to him to stand in or to face his light in repentance. He will warm your heart and he will not say to you, you know, where have you been? Huh? What have you done? And didn't I tell you that you would make a mess of things? Didn't I? Yes? No. He will receive you with a kiss, with his warmth, with his eagerness and readiness. The sun rises with healing in its wings for you who fear the Lord. But now watch, watch David add another stunning image. He says, like a strong man, he runs his course with joy. Jesus referred to himself as a warrior entering into the strong man's castle and plundering his house. This word that is translated strong man is a word that most often refers to a warrior, although the image here can also refer to an athlete who rejoices to run his race who rejoices in his prowess and in his endurance and in his strength because he knows that he will be the first to finish. He will win the race, so he rejoices. Now, you may think, well, now joy and exaltation, that uh, strikes me as odd qualities to ascribe to the sun. Hmm. But the sun's energy is unflagging. Its brilliance undimmed even today. And he wants you to see, he wants you to know that his joy is unhindered. Because he always knows what he is doing. He knows that he has a perfect plan. And he knows that his plan cannot fail. But each detail of his plan contributes to the outcome. So why should he not rejoice? Why should his joy be hindered? For anything that happens in this world is part. Jesus lived his life like the rising sun. Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me, I rejoice to do your will, oh my God. And the Son says it every day, you are not going to dampen my joy. Nothing will dampen my joy. And Jesus says, my joy is to do the will of my Father, to run the course like a strong man and to finish the work that the Father has given me to do. He rejoiced because he knew what the race or the course was about for the glory of God, for the glory that was set before him. 
glory that he has also set before you because he knows what inheritance he has prepared for you. And Jesus never stopped running. He never stopped running and finished his course, a winning athlete, as he knew he would. And when Herod sent his emissaries, saying to Jesus, don't you come to Jerusalem, they're going to kill you. He said, you go and tell that fox, I'm going to do miracles today and cures tomorrow. And after that, I will be perfected. He ran. He never stopped running. He ran even with his hands and feet nailed to the cross, praying, Father, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He didn't say that because he was suddenly overcome with sentimentalism and he broke. He, he said this only because he saw something in them other than beasts and wolves drooling and spluttering and raging in hatred and triumphing because they finally had him where they wanted him. He saw lost children under his tree. He saw lost children under his tree like you and me. That's because he always sees the whole picture and he sees the end from the beginning. And he also sees us and he knows what he will make us and as for us, it does not yet appear what we will be, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him and we will shine like the sun. After we have finished our course running after him. Jesus rejoiced to run his race to the glory of God and for the glory that was set before him. And he will bring you across the finish line along with many sons and daughters to glory. So run, my friend. Never stop running. Run, run after him. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what a beautiful, beautiful psalm and what a beautiful metaphor. Creation speaks with words that no one can fail to hear. It is a testimony of our fall and the darkness that lies over this world that so many don't. But you have opened our ears and we can see the glory that pours forth speech day after day and night after night reveals knowledge of God. And as we have heard today, it is ultimately a message of love and joy, not of predicament, not of ruin or deterioration. For you will make all things new and this creation will be changed. We will be changed 
and we will partake of the glory that is Christ's even now. Oh, Father, do not take away this song. And as we read earlier in Psalm 148, let us respond to the witness of the skies and the witness of your word, giving our own witness, always ascribing glory to you in Jesus. Amen.